We are in John chapter 5. We've made our way to chapter 5 after several weeks. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John the letter, not the gospel. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Um, and it is a, it's a wonderful passage for several reasons. It begins to tie together several of the teachings that we have seen in chapters 1 through 4. As, as John now begins, he's going to have a, a, a prolonged teaching on Christ himself. And then he's going to tell us at the very end of the letter why he wrote the letter, the purpose of it. Before he does that, he's going to bind some of these things together as we see um, him doing it here this morning. I'm going to read to you from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Listen closely. The Apostle writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have seen over the past several weeks that it's not sufficient to merely claim the name of Christ. It's not sufficient to to say that you're a Christian or periodically attend church. If we believe the pollsters, 80 plus percent of the American populace still make such a declaration to be a Christian. It's not sufficient to exercise a religious practice to get baptized or to periodically read your Bible and say, therefore, I must be a Christian. If I were to tell you that I am a great dancer and then you were to see me dance, you would know that I am not a dancer and therefore a liar. Making a declaration to be something or someone apart here in the scriptures from the fruit that is born from that simply is not true. John was dealing with heretical teachings in the church, many who claimed Christ that were not of Christ, and they were not of Christ because they had not been born again. So before he makes his final comments on the Son of God, and before he tells us why he wrote this letter, which we looked at in the first week of our studies weeks ago, he ties together for us what this being born again looks like. What fruit will be manifest by those who claim Christ, who really have been born again, and that the Holy Spirit dwells within them? In other words, he reveals how we ought to live. And the great test that we've been looking at, the examination of our profession of faith that we've looked at for weeks, begins to find its conclusion here in this last chapter. With that in mind, I would like to look at three things this morning. First, the fruit of the new birth. The fruit, not fruits. We will speak of it as one as Paul does in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the new birth, the victory of the new birth, and the power of the new birth. The fruit of the new birth, the victory of the new birth, and the power of the new birth. Let's look at the fruit first. We have already established in our teachings for the past several weeks that the fruit John calls us to examine in our lives, the belief, the love, and the obedience is a product of the outworking of Christ being in us. Something that God has already done. In other words, belief in Christ, love for God, love for His people, obedience to His commands, come as a result of you being born again. It comes as a result of you being regenerated, being made alive by the power of God through Jesus Christ. 
When the Pharisee Nicodemus came out to see Jesus at night in John chapter 3, he said to our Lord, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was drawing a reasonable conclusion based upon his observations of the Son of, Ma- Son of God, seeing him do things that only someone who had the power of God could do. So he asked them, You must be. Jesus said in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says again in verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, no good work, no spiritual fruit, no seeing God, no entering the kingdom, and no power comes to anyone who hasn't been born again. You must be made alive by God for any of this fruit that the apostle's been talking about to be born out in your life. Apart from the Spirit of God giving birth to you, residing in you, then you remain dead. This rebirth is the sovereign work of a holy God exercised upon his elect. It is more than changing someone's moral persuasion or how a person lives. It is a change that affects the whole man, his entire course of life from the inside out. And the glory is it cannot be undone. If God makes you alive, it cannot be undone. So John says, look at verses 1, 2, and 3 again. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments. And so in in a few verses, he gives us an entire summary of everything he's been talking about in the first four chapters. Belief. Love and obedience to God. Fruit that you have been born again. Manifestation, external manifestation of the true work that God has done and is doing in you. Believing that Jesus is the Christ. Loving God and those that he has redeemed. Obeying his commandments. We know all of these. We know. If you know Christ, you know all of these are the work of the Spirit, of Him making us new, of Him regenerating us. Because no one can believe that Jesus is the Christ, and no one will love God or God's children, and no one will try to keep His commandments unless He has been made alive. No one. The great Puritan author Stephen Charnock, in commenting on man's need to be born again, writes this. He says, regeneration is necessary on account of the fall and the consequences of it. Man is not fit for anything good and is not even willing to be so. We have have not those affections to virtue as we have to vice. Are not our lives for the most part voluntarily ridiculous? We are unable to do good. For all of this, from all of this, he writes, it follows that this new birth is necessary in every part of the soul. You being made alive in every part of your soul is necessary for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and necessary for you to love God and His people and necessary for you to keep the commandments of a holy God. You remember when Jesus asked the question to the disciples in Matthew 16? He said, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Listen to our Lord's answer. Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is an act of God. Believing that Jesus Christ is a required... In order for you to believe that, you must be born again. In other words, you don't believe and then God makes you alive. God makes you alive and then you believe. God regenerates the dead soul and then you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Spurgeon said it better than I. Faith in the living God and his son Jesus Christ is always the result of the new birth and can never exist except in the regenerate. Cannot exist unless you've been born again. So you won't believe that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, really believe that Jesus is the Christ unless you've been born again. And if you have been born again by the Spirit of Christ, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's a praise. You say, all right, I get the belief part, but what about love? I mean, lots of people that I know tell me they love God. And lots of people I know tell me they love the church. And lots of people I know tell me they love God's people in the church. Do you have to be regenerate? Do you have to be born again to love God? Do you have to be born again to love God's people? Look at verse 1 again. John said, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Before someone is born again, before someone is made alive, the Bible teaches and history bears this out, that we are at enmity with God, that we hate God and we hate God's people. We hate those upon whom God's favor rests. Now people may appear to be loving towards you, but if they do not love God the Father, then their affections will be fleeting. Some of you know this all too well. In my last two years of teaching, when my, parent, when the, my colleagues and my students and my students' parents found out that I was preaching at an evangelical gospel-centered Reformed Southern Baptist Church, I became chief villain. Thirteen years as a faithful employee, working hard in the classroom, ministering to my students outside of the classroom, was all for naught. Collectively, with the help of their lawyers, they put together an attack that pushed me out of the classroom completely. Now, what they did to harm me, God did for good. They had no idea that they were going to bring me to the full-time ministry, and I praise God for that. But many of those who were involved were professing believers. Many of those would still say today they sincerely love God, but their actions testify otherwise. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, John 15, verses 18 and 20, He said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And that means there are two sides to this cosmic battle. One side of God and His people, and the other side of the world and those who belong to the world. And there are only two sides. And if you are on the side of those persecuting God's church, if you're on the side that comes against God's word, if you're on the side that comes against God himself, then you are on the side of the world regardless of your profession in Christ. John told us in 1 John 2.9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. He has not been born again. He told us again in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. He has not been born again. He brings the point back again in chapter 4, 1 John 4.20. 
If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 21.8 that all liars will have their portion in the lake of fire, which is the second death. In other words, they haven't been born again. This is the universal disposition of the human heart apart from Christ. No love for God and no love for man. And that means that everyone, everyone without exception who has an authentic love for the living God and everyone who has an authentic love for God's people, those he has redeemed by grace, those who have been born again, that means they too must have been born again. Why? Because if we love as John said in 1 John 4.19, it's because God first loved us. If we love, it's because God first loved us. And if God has placed his love upon you, then you have been made alive. So John tells us you've got to be born again to believe. You've got to be born again to love God and love his people. These are basic, this is a basic fruit, a manifestation of your new life in Christ. Belief that Jesus is the Christ and a love for God and a love for those that have been born again. But he gives us a third one, probably the most challenging for us. John says that you, you must be born again in order to obey his commands. Look at verses 2 and 3. The apostle writes, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. John says that we know that we love God if we love his children. And then he flips it. And he says, we know that we love his children when we love God and obey his commands. <laughs> and so the two go hand in hand. If you love God, you'll love his children. If you love the children of God, you'll love God and obey his commands. They cannot be separated. You cannot say, I love the people of God, but I do not obey his commands. You cannot say that I love God and I hate his people. In other words, obedience to God, submission to God, to His word, to His laws, to His will, reveals our love for God's children and is only accomplished in those who have been made alive. The natural man not born of the Spirit of God hates the laws of God and has no desire to submit or keep His commandments. They are burdensome to Him. And if you walk any time in this world apart from Christ, you know how burdensome they are. Have no other God before me. Not your wife or your husband, not your child or your grandchild, not play, not money, not entertainment, and not work. To the unregenerate, that is burdensome. We can go so far as to say that's impossible. Serve, instead of being served, consider others better than yourself. Burdensome to the natural man. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. Burdensome to the natural man. Love your enemies and pray for those who per persecute you. Apart from Christ, are you kidding me? Ultra burdensome to the natural man. The natural man does not want to submit to God. He is in full rebellion. Even when that person attempts to submit externally to the laws of God. We know that unless they are born again, it is all for naught. Zechariah told us, and we saw this some time ago, Zechariah 7. God said through the prophet, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? No one will fool God in an external display of piety if the Spirit of God does not reside in that soul. 
The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Bible says the Lord looks at what? The heart. Obedience to God, the desire to keep His commandments, is the result of being born again and a necessary fruit of the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. It is a necessary fruit of the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. John Stott put it like this. He said, the new birth has the double result of detaching us from the world and attaching us to God. Being born again detaches you from the world and it attaches you to God. And then he writes, the result in each case is keeping his commandments. In each case, the result is obedience to God. So here in these first three verses, John brings together the test that we've been hearing week after week after week by calling us to believe, by calling us to love, and by calling us to obey. This is not difficult to understand. We get it, but it's hard. The absence of one is the absence of them all. They are so bound together, so interwoven, that many of the commentators they were talking say, you can't talk about belief apart from love, and you can't talk about love apart from obedience. They come together. I mean, take belief. If you you believe that Jesus is the Christ, as John says here in verse 1, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, because you've been born again, then you will love God, and you will love God's children, and you will strive to keep His commandments. And when you don't, you'll confess and repent and turn. But it's impossible to say, being born again, it's impossible for you to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but I don't love God, I don't love the church, and I don't want to obey His commands. It means you haven't been born again. What about love? If you love God and his children because you've been born again, can you deny Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah? Can you say that you you love God and you love his people and not keep his commands? It becomes foolishness. If you attempt to obey the laws of God, if you strive to keep his commandments but reject Jesus Christ as the Son, and you have not love, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that you are nothing and that you gain nothing, and that means you have not been born again. So John summarizes this simply by identifying the character of the man or woman who has been born again by the Spirit of Christ. He says, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. He says, you will love God the Father. He says, you will love all those God has redeemed by the blood of Christ and has made born again as well. And you will keep His commandments. This will be manifest in your life if you are a professing Christian who truly has been born again. That also means that if you are a professing Christian who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, who does not manifest this love in your life for God or for the church, who does not submit to the laws of God, then your profession is false. Now I know many people in many churches will hate hearing that, say, well I believed, I was baptized, therefore I must be saved. That's not what John is saying. If you have been saved, you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If you have been saved, you will have a love for God and His people. If you have been saved, you will keep the commandments of God. You will strive to that end. So, first we see the fruit 
of the new birth. Belief, love, and obedience. And secondly, John brings us to this victory of the new birth as well. In fact, it's a guaranteed victory. It's one of the few guarantees that we have in life. Lots of people guarantee lots of things, especially when you're buying an expensive product. God guarantees this, and it is guaranteed. Look at verses 4 and 5. The apostle writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? A derivative of the same Greek word here is used four times in two verses. Overcomes, victory, overcome, and overcomes. And the Greek word, believe it or not, is a word that you all know well, although not in the context of the Bible. It's a word that you know well because of sports and probably because of shoes and athletic apparel. Do you know what the word is? It's Nike. It's Nike. He uses that in in four different forms in two verses. And it literally means to overcome or to be victorious or to subdue with power. And for those of you who remember your Greek mythology, Nike was a goddess who personified victory. And according to the classical myths, Nike's mother Styx brought Nike to Zeus when Zeus was making an allied force for himself to fight against the deities of old in the great Titan war. And Nike had the role of a divine charioteer. Listen to this. She would fly around the battlefield and reward the victors with glory and fame. It was her role in battle to confer the crown of glory. She was to give the crown of glory to all those who were victorious in battle. John uses the term four times to convey a similar but undeniable truth. What Nike did in mythology, Jesus Christ did on the cross in reality. If you've been born again, then you have already overcome the world because of the work of Christ. And you will overcome the world. And your end will be a crown of glory, the victor's prize, the glory of Christ, a crown of righteousness. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, listen closely. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. And the emphasis of the victory in this passage is not upon the person, or the power of that person, or the will of that person, or the good works of that person. The emphasis of the victory here is upon the divine influence that God places upon that believer. Enabling them to overcome. Enabling them to conquer. A few weeks ago, we heard the Apostle Paul say to us in 1 John 4, 4, he said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Remember, those were the false prophets, those who were of the world. He says, you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, this new birth, being born again, being regenerated, gives you a new heart with new desires. It breaks the spell that our flesh, being bound to the things of this world and the desires of this world, it breaks that spell, causing the fascination of the world to lose its appeal. You say, well, what is the world? Calvin put it like this. He says, whatever is adverse to God's spirit is of the world. Whatever is adverse to God's spirit 
John told us in 1 John 2, 16, he said, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what this passage is telling us is that if you have been born again, then you have the power to overcome the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It says you have overcome them already in Christ, and you have the power in the Holy Spirit right now to overcome them today. That which used to have us bound as creatures born in sin no longer does. Being born of God, we're set free in Christ to crucify the flesh with his passions, desires, and live now as instruments of righteousness. This day, this week, this year, to be a holy people set apart for his glory. Set free. In Mark chapter 1, early in our Lord's ministry, Jesus was making his way through Galilee and a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, he said to Christ, you can make me clean. This man was bound by his leprosy. He was an outcast. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. The power of Christ healed that man, and that man was never the same. It said that he went out and began to talk freely, speaking of this news. It's the same spirit in those born again that enabled Jesus Christ, who appeared to be overwhelmed by the world in the garden, to overcome the world for us on the cross. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. Listen, this is from Mark 14. He said, my soul is overwhelmed. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then the gospel writer tells us that he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from him. He cries out in verse 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The world was about to overcome our Lord. Darkness was about to overcome light. Knowing that he was going to be arrested, he was going to be abandoned by his friends and his disciples, he was going to be falsely accused, he was going to be beaten beyond recognition, he was going to be tried and found guilty, even though he was completely innocent. And then he was going to be nailed to a Roman cross, knowing that upon that cross he was going to suffer the full wrath of a holy God, bearing our sins in his body in order to redeem those chosen by God, overwhelming would be a gross understatement of the magnitude that came upon Christ that night. And yet, he went. He did his Father's will. He drank the cup of God's fury, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in the greatest comeback, the greatest turn of events in all of human history, what seemed lost and hopeless for both man and God, for at least for a little while was transformed in the greatest victory of all time. On the cross, it seemed as though darkness had won. That Satan and the dominions of darkness had been victorious. God was dead. On the cross, he breathed his last breath and gave up his spirit. But most of you have been here long enough and in the faith long enough to know that that's not how the story ends. 
After three days in the tomb, our Savior rose from the grave and on Sunday morning, overcoming the power of the world and sin and death, He brought mankind hope, real hope, to fallen, sinful, rebellious man. He had told the disciples this in John 16. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. What? I have overcome the world. This is before he ascended the cross. Because Jesus has past tense, overcome the world, and now sits the right hand of God ready to come again in all of his glory and overcome the world once and forever. Those who have been born again share in his victory. You share in the completed work of our Lord on the cross. You share in the victory right now in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the world today. We share in the victory, the final victory of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. When he comes again in glory, he will give us a crown of righteousness that will last forever. We are what Christ won, the product of his victory, his church, his bride. In other words, saints, even though the battle continues, and for many of you now it seems like it rages, and some would even believe that the world is making good progress, the war was won on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished, assuring victory for all those who are in Christ, for all those who have been Born again. John Stott again said, The conflict will be great sometimes. And the world is not subdued at once. Nevertheless, the new nature goes on to victory and overcomes wholly in the end. You have in Christ overcome. Whatever your struggles may be right now, whatever temptations are moving you to sin, whatever sense of hopelessness that you've embraced, however discouraged you may be, Christ is saying, I have overcome, and if you are in me, if you've been born again, then you too have overcome. So 1 John reveals the fruit of being born again, belief, love, and obedience to God's commands. And then he reveals the victory we enjoy now and forever as a result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have the fruit of the new spirit. We have the victory of the new spirit. And lastly, John calls us to exercise the power of the new spirit. The power. When new babies are born, they are relatively helpless. They could be easily overcome by sickness, by abuse, by neglect. Not so with those born of God. The Bible teaches that if you know Jesus Christ, you have been filled and equipped with the most powerful Entity in the known universe, the living God. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. In other words, the victory that Christ accomplished on the cross belongs to you now, right now. And this victory is to be exercised and extended every day as you live and grow to bring Him honor and glory. We're to exercise this victory. What does this look like? I mean, what? it's one thing to talk about God's commands not being burdensome, but how do they become not burdensome? 
John says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. How do they become not burdensome? How does the unregenerate go from hating God and hating God's people to loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving those God has redeemed? How does that happen? How do we have victory over the flesh? How do we have victory over the temptation to sin, let alone the sin? John gives us two clues from the text, this passage, for those who have been born again and how we can participate in the victory ourselves each and every day. He says, first you must be born again. There is no victory for you if you have not. But if you've been born again, if you've been made alive by the Spirit of Christ, he said, then there are two means of grace. And they are means of grace. The church has called them disciplines of the faith that we are to exercise. One is love and the other is faith. One is love and the other is faith. And please do not say that sounds so cliche. Let's look at love first. When we are born again, when God comes to us and breathes life into our dead bones and gives us his Holy Spirit, love comes too. Do you remember twice in this letter, John says God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And therefore, his spirit dwelling in you, divine love is residing in you as well. And love has a very powerful influence on people. Love, even apart from the Spirit of God, a worldly love, a temporal love, has an amazing power to change the way people think and behave and engage. When it, whatever you set your affections on most will have the greatest influence on your life. If I love my job most, more than God, more than my wife and my children and my family, more than my books and my friends then I will keep the commandments of my employer no matter what. My boss tells me to get my family and my possessions and pack up and move to Budapest. I will go. Why? Because my affections for my job overcome everything else. Love is a powerful force. A less extreme example, if I truly love my wife, if I biblically love my wife, desiring her ultimate well-being above my own, then it will not be burdensome to serve her and it will not be burdensome to care for her and nurture her and love her as Christ loves the church. It won't be burdensome. Where love is present, saints, burden is replaced by desire. Where love, biblical love is present, burden is replaced by desire. And where we once did things reluctantly or begrudgingly or self-centeredly, whenever we did something just because we wanted something out of it, that will change. And we will do things for the glory of God. With great joy. Many of you know my past. And my story. And my testimony. I used to hate God's word. I hated it. Being born again. And having God's love dwell in me. Turned that which I once found loathsome. Into something beautiful. I can agree with the psalmist. In Psalm 119.103. When he said how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth? I can say that sincerely because of God making me alive. I used to hate going to church. I used to hate being around those who went to church. I hated those who professed Christ. I didn't even know why I hated them so much, but I hated them. I can say to you, in all humility, 
I agree with David now in Psalm 26, 8, when he says, I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. I love your people, Lord. As an unregenerate sinner, I had a particular disdain for God's laws, especially those that pointed out my most heinous sins. And those were the ones that I always heard. I can say to you sincerely because of the work of Christ that I agree with Psalm 119, 127, and 128. The psalmist says, Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. The love of God has the power to change us. The whole man from the inside out. It will change the way you think. It will change the way you read. It will change the way you speak and the way you listen. It will change the way you interact with those who declare Christ. It will change the way you interact with your neighbors and those who are lost and your employer. It changes everything. And when we, those who have been saved by God's grace and have the Holy Spirit... Take this love and exercise it. Overcoming will take place too. Love is a means of grace. It is to be exercised. It is to be implemented. It is to be repeated over and over and over again. If we expect any substantive change in our lives, if we expect to change, to be transformed in the image of God, on a daily basis, over many years, over our entire life, if we have this expectation, yes, you have already overcome because of the work of Christ, and then Christ calls you to overcome now. It's not sufficient to simply say that you love. It's not sufficient to simply say that you love someone. To send them an occasional email, or have them over for an obligatory meal, It's not sufficient to love only those who are easy to be loved or to love only those that you are like. Scriptures call us and command us to cultivate this divine love that resides in our heart because of Christ for those who have been born again and the lost through action. Through action. Remember 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. You see, it's easy for me to say that I love you. And it's easy for you to say that you love one another. And it's easy for us to say we love our neighbors. But unless that moves in action and deed in truth, if we love our neighbors and they're lost, we'll share the gospel with them. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we say with their mouth, then we will serve them. If you desire to truly love, then we must grow our love for God in hearing His voice speak to us daily through His Word. I know of no better means of grace than hearing God speak to you daily through His Word, through the Scriptures. You must dialogue with Him daily through prayer. If you desire this love that God has given to you by by making you alive to grow in your life, as you exercise it, for those that he has redeemed, for those in our mission field, then you will hear him speak to you and you will speak to him in prayer. We must grow in our sharing the gospel with the lost and ministering to those in need. In our keeping his commandments and submitting to his will for our lives. If the love of God is paramount 
in your life, then you don't need the law plastered upon a wall in your home. I don't need a law telling me to raise my children the way they should go so that when they're older they won't depart from it. I don't need that. If I have the love of Christ in me, I will desire that for them. I will preach to them. I will read to them. I will pray with them. I will grow them. Love will compel me to that end. The more you exercise this divine love, the more his love will grow. And the more this love grows in you, the greater influence you will have, it will have in your life and the more you will overcome this world. Wonderful domino effect. And so first we see love when embraced and exercised enables us to keep God's commands without them being burdensome. How does a command no longer, how is it no longer burdensome upon you? When you desire to obey it. When you desire to submit. Will you do it perfectly? Of course not. We will fail regularly and need to repent daily. But you will grow. You will be transformed. And it will be to the glory of God in your daily victories. So we have love to be exercised. In addition, and this is the last one I'll close, we are able to participate in this victory by exercising our faith. Look at verse 4 again. John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You know, that's the only time, that's the only time the Apostle John uses that word as a noun in the New Testament. You know that? Every other time. In fact, he uses this word faith. He uses this word in the Greek of all the times it's used in the New Testament, he uses it half of every time. And the only time he uses it as a noun is right here. And it's a declara- declaration of that which has the power. It's this victory has overcome the world. It is our faith. Being born of God, you have been empowered by God's grace through faith to overcome. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Not a faith that you come up with. Not a faith that you have conjured up yourself. But the very faith that God has given to you and making you alive. A faith that comes from God and is substantiated in his son. Look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, 1, that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And that means the exercising of our faith will be, will be becoming more sure of what we hope for and more certain of what we do not see on a daily basis. What do we hope for? What do you hope for, saints? It's a rhetorical question because some of your answers might not be appropriate to be lifted up. What do you hope for? We hope that the promise made to Abraham by God was true. We hope that through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by the Savior. We hope for that. We hope that the broken body and spilled blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross actually does have the power to save us, to make us clean, to rescue us from the power of sin and death and hell. We hope that salvation is by grace alone because we know our works all too well and we know they're worse than filthy rags. We know this. So we hope for the grace. 
We hope in the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us daily and make us holy as He is holy. We hope in that. We hope in the return of our Lord that He will come again in glory. All the glory of the Father. And He will establish His kingdom. And He will reign. And His kingdom will have no end. We hope in the pardon that will come to all those who will stand before the judge in Christ. We hope that His blood is a sufficient covering. And as we read His holy word and we see God's character revealed throughout the centuries, He has proved Himself faithful time and time again. He is faithful. Moses tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. He said, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, verse 9. Now therefore... Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his commandments of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. The more we look at the goodness of God as revealed in the Bible, the more we look at the faithfulness of God as revealed throughout history, the more we look at the promises that he has never broken, his fidelity, not ours. We're not faithful, he is faithful. We break our promises. He fulfills His promises. The more we gaze upon a crucified Christ who died for our sins that we might be set free and redeemed, the more sure we will become of the real hope that we have. And the greater your faith will be, the more you will overcome this world. Our faith will grow as well the more certain we become of that which we cannot see. Do you exercise the discipline of becoming more certain of that which you cannot see? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.18 to fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. What we see is fleeting. That which is not seen God Heaven, hell, angels, demons, life eternal, the saints that have gone before us, the promises already fulfilled, they are eternal. And therefore, the less we put our trust in the things of this world, the less we cast our eyes upon our finances and our marriages, upon our neighborhoods and our children, our education and our degrees, the less we put our trust in these things. And the more we put our trust in that which we cannot see, an invisible God, a crucified, risen Christ, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you if you've been born again, the kingdom of God that is already at hand, said Christ, the kingdom of God that will come in all the glory of the Father, the transformation of hearts and minds that's taking place even at this moment amongst saved souls throughout the world. People today are being transformed into the image of Christ the more certain we become of these eternal truths, the real power of prayer, 
I think one of the reasons we struggle so much with prayer is because it is invisible. Not the action, not the words, but the dynamic that takes place. The more we put our trust in that which we cannot see, the more certain we become of these eternal truths and promises and the more our faith will grow. The greater our trust will be in God in his power to redeem lost souls and deliver us from the lake of fire. Young believers not raised in the church, oftentimes in their early walk, I've noticed this in my sharing the gospel, especially with students, they're attracted to apologetics, an answer back. They want an answer back. They want to understand more. I don't know why, not so much with those raised in the church. That's probably not good. We usually think of apologetics in the context of evangelism. Apologetics are for believers. It's not that you can't use them in evangelism, but we're to share the gospel. We're to talk about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the need to be saved in Christ. Not old earth and new earth. Those are great dialogues to have and great debates to have, but apologetics are to make you more certain of that which you already believe. And the more you study and the more you pray and the more you pursue Christ and the more you read your word and the more you do this, the more you gather with brothers and sisters in Christ and worship the living God, the more you persevere in this faith, the more sure you will become of what you hope for and the more certain you will become of that which you do not see, which is eternal. The longer you walk, the closer you get to Christ, the less these apologetic needs will... I mean, I love the debates, I love the dialogue, but they don't draw me closer. Now, verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Hearing God remind you of his promises, having others remind you of the promises of God will increase your hope. Hearing God's redemptive work throughout history will increase your certainty. Seeing the work of salvation in your life, you mortifying sin, you confessing sin, you growing in the fruit of the Spirit of God, you changing over time. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's real power and it's real transformation of real people. You've seen this take place in your life, in the life of others. This testifies to the faithfulness of God. This makes you more sure of what you hope for. This makes you more certain of that which you cannot see. As you exercise love and faith, you will find yourself more and more victorious in your daily walk with Christ. By God's grace, your victory is already secured in Him by the work that He completed on the cross. The more you grow in love and faith, the more real this victory will become to you in your daily life. One author said, and I agree, wherever there is true faith, there is victory. Wherever there is true faith, there is already victory. Why? Because the substance of our faith is a conquering, victorious Savior. Look at verse 5 again, and I'll close. Who is that? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith is grounded in a crucified, risen Savior. It has its substance in Christ. And so John does something amazing here. He ties everything together. 
And in the final sentence of verse 5 of this particular passage, he, in affirming Jesus as the Son of God, he brings us full circle. How so? All those born again believe that Jesus is the Christ. Amen? All those who love the Father love those who have been born again. Those who love God also keep His commandments and they're not burdensome. The commandments of God are not burdensome because the person born again has overcome the world. He is victorious in Christ. As you exercise love and faith, you will manifest these fruits to the world and the world will see that you are overcoming too. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore you must be born again? Saints, you cannot believe that Jesus is the Christ. You cannot love God the Father. You cannot love those he has redeemed. And you cannot keep his commands apart from being born again. One of the greatest lies you could hear is a pastor from a pulpit telling you that you can. If when you look at yourself and you evaluate your walk in Christ... And if you have a brother or sister or a friend that comes alongside you and you evaluate these things, a true profession, a true belief in Jesus as the Messiah, a true love for God that is manifest in love for one another, a true desire to keep the commandments of God, and when you don't, true confession and true repentance. If those things are not happening, saints, you may not be born again. The Spirit of Christ may not dwell in you. Better to know that now than to come before our Lord and hear him say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Many will come to him on that day and say what? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many miracles in your name? He'll say, I never knew you. Why? They were never born again. God must do a mighty work in you. You must see his holiness. You must see the depth of your sin. You must see that your just desert is an eternity in an everlasting hell. And you must repent and believe. That is by his grace and his grace only. Saints, do not hear this as many would and say, well, of course I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course I love God. Of course I love people. Of course, don't answer it like that. He's writing it so the churches in Ephesus will examine themselves. As Paul said, to test yourself to see whether or not you are in this faith. And it's a glorious test. Because if you fail the test, then repent and believe. And follow Christ. And if you examine yourself with brothers and sisters and you find yourself knowing Christ and loving Christ and loving the brethren and obeying, then you praise God also because that's a work of His grace. So let's pray. That we be faithful to submit to this word this morning. To not relegate it to passages that we've heard dozens of times. To not foolishly say to ourselves, well of course I believe. Examine yourselves. Let's do that now.
holy and gracious Father. For too long and too often we have assumed things. We have assumed because we made a public profession. Or entered the waters of baptism. Or given some of our tithes and offerings to the church. Or engaged in a form of ministry or read our Bibles. We assume that these things save us. Your word makes it eminently clear, Lord, that you must do the saving work. We are dead in our sins and transgressions, and you must come to us, and you must make us alive if we are to know you, if we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, if we are to love as your Bible calls us to love, if we are to love one another, if we are to keep your commands, you must make us alive. And if you have made us alive, then this will be the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in us. I pray, Lord, that as you bring these verses to us this morning, they would not be discouraging, but filled with hope. Knowing, Lord, that if we examine ourselves in light of all of 1 John and find ourselves not believing and not loving and not obeying, that we would repent and believe and obey. We'd ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our lives. We would call upon you to have mercy upon us. That we would come before you as a holy God and we would confess our sins and confess our rebellion and confess our enmity towards you and your church and be made clean this day. For those who have known you, some for many years, we have great assurance, Lord, in the great work that you have done and are doing. We know with every fiber of our being, Lord, that Jesus Christ has overcome the world already. That he has, by his grace, imparted that to us, his victory, his righteousness, That we have by your grace the power of the Holy Spirit to live this day and every day as a holy people set apart to bring you honor and glory. For you are most deserving of it. And we know, Lord, that on that day of judgment that we will stand before you not upon our own merits, but upon the merits of Christ, covered by his blood, washed white as snow. Father, make us more sure of that which we hope for. Make us more certain of that which we cannot see. By your grace, Lord, I ask that you would increase our faith. And in so doing, Lord, cause us to overcome. Cause us to overcome in such a way, Lord, the world may see our good deeds and bring you honor and glory. We praise you for this passage, Lord. I praise you for the preservation of this text, for the faithfulness of the Apostle John, for your calling us together this morning as a church to hear your word proclaimed. By your grace and mercy, I pray you would take it and impute it to our hearts and minds that we might live in accordance with it. In so doing, keep your commandments by your grace and mercy and the power of Christ. I pray these things. Amen.